welcome to episode two of RehabCast. This is the Rehabilitation Medicine Update brought to you by the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm Ford Vox. In the featured article segment for the May issue, we're going to be talking with a neuroorthopedic rehab team from the University Hospital of Montpelier, France. They're reporting on impressive results on treating tendon contractures with a needle alone. They took the time to join us while on a working trip to Martinique. They were busy teaching and treating, but I hope they got in some time with the local culture. In this episode, we'll also be talking with Hermano Ego Krebs of MIT about his work and the upcoming Rehabilitation Robotics Conference that he's directing along with Dylan Edwards at Burke Medical Research Institute. But first up in our news update, we're going to hear from Dr. Rick Lieber, who until Saturday, March 25th, was the Chief Scientific Officer of the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. Now, both he and his institution have moved down the street and into a new era. The famed RIC name is being retired as the organization makes a dramatic move into its future with an advanced new hospital. It's now the largest rehabilitation hospital in the country at 1.2 million square feet. The building comes with a new name that reflects its focus on integrating rehabilitation scientists side by side with clinical care as much as possible. Dr. Lieber is now the chief scientific officer at what is called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Shirley Ryan and her husband, Pat Ryan, are major Chicago philanthropists whose gift of an undisclosed sum helped make the transformation possible. I started out by asking Dr. Lieber about the remarkable decision to change a brand name that has sat atop the rankings in rehabilitation medicine for 26 years straight. Yeah, I'm sure it must be enormously complicated. I mean, talk about a powerful uh, brand. Obviously, I guess folks in, in rehabilitation medicine need to remind themselves, though, while uh, RIC is a big brand for us. It is, I guess, a relatively small field. And if you talk about medicine broadly, even the top rehab hospital in this field uh, doesn't have necessarily as much broad rec name recognition within medicine as you know Sloan Kettering or something like that. It hasn't. We haven't transcended, I suppose, enough that our that our top facilities are something that are known throughout the country in that sense. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. It's a, it's a phenomenal brand name inside the field of rehabilitation, but that's mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, but that, that takes a lot of cojones, though, to, to give it up. I you know. know. Well, this place is brave. I mean, I'm relatively new, so I feel like I can say that, but it's, it's, it's a brave place. How, how new are you? Uh, two and a half years. I was at UC San Diego for 32 years before I got here. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you started on this, you already knew that the uh, the Ability Lab was coming, I would, I would presume. Yes, yes. Because this has been in the works for how long? Well, I mean, the idea, probably nine years from, you know, the idea. We, we knew as a hospital we had to grow from a business point of view because we were running cl close to 90% occupancy. But how to grow was a trick. <coughs> and Joanne Smith, our CEO, started negotiating for a downtown Chicago piece of property about nine years ago. And that, that itself was kind of a miracle between us and the VA and Northwestern University to, to make a deal for lots of different properties and end up with a half a block in what we call Streeterville. It was a, apparently that was a coup long before I was in the picture. There are so many fascinating elements about this whole concept and project. The numbers are huge. The new hospital comes in at over half a billion dollars. Uh, you've got 30% more beds at 242. 
and there are plans to grow that to 100% over your old facility to, to 360 beds. There's a vast expansion in the research space as well. Uh, but what's the most innovative aspect to you? I think the most innovative part of the design is actually embedding scientists in the clinical milieu. As you know, uh, scientists often are in their wing of the building or their floor or even in their different building, and they will visit with physicians and take part in clinics sort of on an as-needed basis. But we really think by embedding them in with clinicians that they're going to be learning things about clinical problems, that they're going to be seeing things they hadn't seen before, that they're going to be coming up with ideas, that they're going to be seeing treatments that are confusing to them, and that by um, sort of co-localizing our treating physicians, patients, and scientists, we will come up with new ways to treat our patients better and get better outcomes. I mean, that's been huge. It's been one of the, I guess, to some extent, one of the advantages that uh, clinical researchers who have a clinical practice have over traditional, um, uh, you know, straight uh, bench uh, researchers, I suppose, is that direct connection to what the daily problems are. On the other hand, they don't have the time to be able to dedicate to those research problems. And really, I guess, you, you know as well as, as anybody else, the, it's important uh, for anybody who is dedicating their lives to doing science. They don't always be taking instruction or cues from other people. I mean, as much as clinicians uh, delivering care would love to have, I guess, a, a cadre of researchers that beck and call and say, hey, you do this, buddy, and you do that. And you, I mean, they, they, these are smart, independent people who need to be creative and design their own projects as well. So yeah, to embed them in there, I guess, is, is really going to hopefully change the game. I've, I've been telling our scientists, um, well, you're, you're exactly right. What you said about, you know, I've, I've been on review committees where, let's say, you know, let's say it's a stroke review committee. And so some scientists will come up with an idea that's really clever and using nice technology and very sophisticated analytical, analytical tools, but then a clinician will be on the panel and they'll go, yeah, but our stroke patients really don't have that problem. <laughs> so everyone's sitting there and they're saying, yeah, that's too bad because it's a great idea. So how long did that guy or that girl spend writing the grant, thinking the idea, talking to their colleagues, which are probably students and other engineers and that kind of thing, and yet it really was an idea that should have failed right away. And, you know, in the business world, they talk about fail quickly. They should have failed quickly. And they said, hey, instead of worrying about can they, can they walk, you should worry about can they stand or, you know, just something like that. And I had, I had the, um, the privilege, and I still do, one of my closest colleagues is a hand surgeon. And he and I met in San Diego in 1984. And we became buddies, and he, I'm interested in muscle, he's interested in muscle, and we just started talking about the problems he has, and he'd say, yeah, well, the problem is, you know, you don't exactly know how to readjust these muscles. And I said, well, muscles have these things called sarcomeres, and they're easily measured, and we could probably do that. So, you know, we just started doing things like that naturally, and we really didn't realize it was what would be called translational research, but I was always sold on the model. So actually, you know, I'm a basic scientist, but I spent my 32 years in a department of orthopedic surgery. And I actually mm -hmm. preferred it because I feel like I'm a problem solver and we can always round up the tools and the people. And so here we're gonna be committed on uh, these various ability labs. We're gonna be committed to the problems that our patients really want answers to. Yes, there will be some scientist initiated stuff, but my job as chief scientific officer will be to say, well, which of our patients would that help? Or, you know, and I, we don't really care about the term. I mean, one to 10 years is probably fine, depending on the problem, but which of our patients would that really help? And is that our highest priority? Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of discussions that are 
as you know, extremely rare in sort of biomedical science. The Ability Lab is taking the extra step of backing up its ambitions to integrate patient care and science with more than just a well-thought-out physical space, but some real attention to how it goes after funding dollars uh, and how it maintains the necessary internal funding for its scientists and clinicians to focus on problems that external funding sources just don't support. You know how it is when these RFAs come out from either NIH or NIDLR or whoever, they say, okay, what we want to see is this, and everyone starts chasing them. And there's nothing wrong with that, and we will continue doing that, at least in part. But for example, again, in my world, sort of tetraplegia, upper extremity function, there's a lot of research that needs to be done that will never be an NIH grant or a VA grant or a NIDLR grant, simply because, it, first of all, it's probably not that complicated, it's not that long term, but it's still very important to our patients. So yes, uh, to address your question, we do have internal funding. We've done a really good job, not me, but our, our leaders have done a very good job of fundraising so that we will be able to buy time of scientists and physicians so the physicians you know, won't be tied to RVUs and the scientists won't only be tied to um, you know, percent effort on a grant, but that we could say, okay, you know, okay, here, here genius scientists, we're gonna buy 10% of your time to solve this problem on wrist range of motion measurements or you know whatever whatever the problem of the day is, and to try to have the balance between, you know, um, I would I guess I would say to try to have a balance between credible extramural funding, which is part of you know scientific credibility, and the kind of stuff that would really make a difference for our patients. So it's That's probably fascinating. yeah it's yeah. probably not it's probably not not chasing funding. It's probably not being tied to only doing what is extramurally fundable. Yeah, I would argue that's just as important as, as what you're talking about with this innovative new hospital design. And it reminds me a little bit about kind of what you hear with Silicon Valley companies, how Google lets employees have, you know, X percentage of time to kind of work on their own projects and see where that goes and kind of bringing that that type of culture uh, where folks, you know, feel like, you know, they're they're supported and their their time is uh, is supported to be able to innovate on their own. That Plus, when I think when smart people who are hardworking and committed to their profession are presented with a problem, you know, we're all just sort of naturally inquisitive and we start bouncing ideas around. And that's a really stimulating environment, sort of like a moonshot environment. So we envision that, you know, the morning huddle will include, you know, the typical patient information and the treatment plans and things like that, but it will also include someone saying, you know, I just read a paper where I think what they're doing is, you know, transcutaneous magnetic stimulation combined with this, and then the, the therapist and the doctor say, oh, really? Well, what was that for? And, you know, those kind of discussions, which are, if, if you look at our website, we have that little thing talking about casual meetings in the elevator. Again, I've had a, a bunch of those over my career, and I find that kind of environment extremely stimulating. I think we're going to attract the kind of person who's drawn toward problem solving. The Ability Lab is going to be iterative rather than linear. What do you mean by that? The idea is that um, since, it, since it really will be the fail quickly model, people will be, let's say, a, a, a scientist from the scientific perspective, a scientist will, will be presented with a problem by clinicians and may take a first pass at it. You know, let's say it's a problem with standing. And then the clinician will say, well, it wasn't really, it's not really a quadriceps problem, it's more of a balance problem. And so, you know, instead of the scientist going back into the lab or a building and spending a year coming up with a great stander upper, they might try a first quick pass and then clarify the problem. So the problem itself gets clarified over time 
and the solutions become iterative. You know, so maybe strength plus balance, or maybe you know the different weightings of the two, or maybe maybe device plus you know physiological stimulation, and the kind of thing where um, all the tools are on the table and the solution isn't obvious. But by trying solutions quickly, the solutions and the problems become more obvious. I don't know if you've read that book, uh, Wisdom of Crowds, but but it's a it's a great book that describes you know sort of the multidisciplinary approach that we're all used to, but especially the, um, from the point of view of uh, taking a first shot at a problem, and mm -hmm. that has a tremendous clarifying power. So we would um, we would probably say. Um, in, in biology, there's this other kind of sampling principle. It's called do more, less well. So we I would, you. you know what I mean? Feel, feel free to make errors. Yeah, 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 exactly. Highly error tolerant, obviously not with patient safety or anything like that, but you know, we're gonna have, we have a, for example, one of our novel spaces in the building is a maker space that we're creating in collaboration with Northwestern University Engineering, uh, Biomedical Engineering. So it would be very simple for a student and that's that's sort of they're going to be hanging out all over. Be very simple for a student to draw something in SolidWorks, go upstairs and print it, and bring it back down into the lab on the hours time scale. And then if it required electronics, uh, three of our ability labs have small electronic shops. And then right under all of the ability labs, we have a pretty nice um, machine shop. So we can we can kind of slowly create gizmos, devices, and of course, I'm not sure if you've heard, but up on the 26th floor, we have actually have a complete biologics lab. So oh, wow. um, there's, there's a lot of tools available, and you know, the answers to a lot of the questions will probably be multifactorial, multidimensional. From a clinical perspective, the Ability Lab also includes a medically advanced care unit, similar to an ICU, which allows the facility to treat increasingly complicated cases like those we're seeing in rehab hospitals across the country nowadays uh, and take patients earlier, while cutting down on the transfer rate. The hospital's MRI suite also opens up new research avenues, as Dr. Lieber explains. Yeah, so, so one of the things we're excited about, obviously brain plasticity is a big deal in all of rehab, but a lot of patients who are undergoing inpatient therapy, you know, are having these brain changes, and it's just not practical for us, even though we're very interested in brain and we have brain imaging expertise, we really do it uh, mostly on an outpatient basis, and an inpatient who needs a brain scan, it's usually for some acute medical issue. So the mm -hmm. idea of being able to study kind of the science of rehabilitation of inpatients, I hired a young, um, young brain imaging guy, and I told him, I mean, you've got a career in this building because there's, there's so many patients and so many indications and so many different questions that simply imaging our own patients will give you a competitive advantage over your colleagues forever. That's so true, yeah. When you look at the neuroimaging uh, literature, there's so much funding and everything that just surrounds being able to get people back and forth to imaging centers and that type of thing, but you have a captive audience right there. Yeah, a lot of neuroscientists are good at that stuff. Another thing I was gonna tell you about um, the sort of this uh, collaborative model between clinicians and scientists. Um, and I think you sort of mentioned it. Um, one thing I noticed was, since I was, I was doing sort of hand surgery research in tetraplegia, um, spending so much time in the clinic and so much time in the operating room, you just marinate in that juice. You know things you don't even know you know, and it gives you a huge competitive advantage. And I noticed as I was going through my career, you know, people would say something and it, you know, it just wouldn't ring true, or you'd think, wow, that person's never seen a quadriplegic patient, or you'd think that's not what a tendon transfer is, or, you know, or they don't know their anatomy. So 
It's just mm-hmm. stuff that you know by living in that kind of stuff, I think in retrospect has given me tremendous advantage over my basic science alone colleagues. So one of the things I'm telling people as I'm recruiting them is I, I really believe if this is the kind of, if, you, if you're the kind of person who wants to solve problems and this is the kind of environment that you want to be working in, um, you have a tremendous competitive advantage over scientists who are not living with clinicians because you will know stuff you don't even know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know about you, but Dr. Lieber has got me on the edge of my seat, eager to see if the Ability Lab transcends into the upper echelon of iconic American healthcare brands that occupy a space in the collective mind. Dr. Lieber is assembling an excellent team, and the people are, of course, what any enterprise ultimately boils down to. I think they've got a shot. Now turning to the healthcare policy news. What a difference a few weeks makes in the nation's capital. The AHCA, which proposed radical changes for the Medicaid services that many people living with disabilities rely on, is dead. And that's in part because of the rallying cry of all the constituencies that benefit from Medicaid. Uh, And most of the budget, of course, of Medicaid actually goes to elder care. The ACA remains the law of the land, according to House Speaker Paul Ryan, but we're already hearing chatter about more health care proposals that will warrant our time and attention in the coming months. And nobody's quite sure what to make of the president's assertions that the ACA is on track to quote-unquote explode this year. The administration pulled back on enrollment advertisements for the exchanges, and it remains to be seen whether the federal government will continue to enforce the tax penalties for foregoing medical insurance. So the debate now is whether the ACA will wither through neglect or perhaps active administration sabotage. Now the healthcare focus is on the president's budget proposal, which calls for a $1.2 billion cut to the NIH budget this fiscal year, and then $5.8 billion in 2018. That's 17.6% of the entire NIH budget. Now, MIT, which, of course, conducts much important bioengineering research, put out a letter stating that the institution faced an 8 to 10 percent drop in funding in 2018, given that 66 percent of the university's funding comes through federal sources. MIT's leadership, like that of many institutions across the country right now, is heavily involved in lobbying and public advocacy around the importance of biomedical research. A well-timed study in the journal Science out of Harvard Business School and MIT traces the direct and indirect effects of NIH grants percolating throughout the economy. 31% of research grants from 1990 to 2007 led to over 81,000 private sector patents. That's a lot of jobs, jobs, jobs. Both the current acting CDC director who testified before Congress and the former CDC director, Tom Frieden, who is speaking out to the media, are advocating for that agency's budget, too. The AHCA threatened a budget cut of almost $1 billion through the loss of the Prevention and Public Health Fund, which goes to state agencies and the CDC itself. That's money used for a lot of basic public health work, things like stroke prevention programs, as well as tackling everything from the flu to Zika. Even though the AHCA has failed, the agency is still on the chopping block for $314 million to its program that grant money to workplace safety, public health preparedness, and HIV-AIDS programs. 
The March for Science, which seeks to promote evidence-based policy and scientific integrity, is on Earth Day, April 22nd in Washington, D.C., and hundreds of other cities. The event has earned the backing of some of the top scientific organizations in the country, including the Society for Neuroscience and the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, and indeed, it's actually an official part of the Earth Day network. The Washington Post is projecting that the March for Science could be one of the largest demonstrations ever in the name of the scientific community. Michael Halpern of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists summed up the reasoning behind the march pretty well, telling the Post, some people for a long time believed that if scientists would just dispassionately provide data, that science would not be politicized. That turned out to be a misjudgment of colossal proportions. Now, in conference news, of course, don't forget the April 27th through 29th ACRM mid-year meeting right here in Atlanta to be followed by the big annual conference October 23rd through 28th, also here in the capital of the South. Projections are that our highway, uh, I-85, which went down in flames on March 30th, will be back in action by then. Now, regardless, you'd be wise to stay at or near the conference hotel. Uh, That's the Hilton Atlanta, and I must say it's the home of perhaps one of the world's best preserved original Trader Vic's restaurants right there in the basement. You got to visit. So uh, Atlanta's attention from the rehab world just doesn't stop. We're also going to be home base for the Association of Academic Physiatrists Conference in February 2018. Now, one conference that isn't coming to Atlanta is instead situated just north of the little backwater known as Manhattan. I'm talking about the Rehab Robotics Conference 2017, which is coming up June 2nd through 4th at Burke Rehabilitation Hospital in White Plains. With me now on the rehab cast, we've got Ego Krebs. He's a principal research scientist in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at MIT. He's also a fellow of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Ego, you're a course director this year of what is the second Rehabilitation Robotics Conference at Burke. You had a successful conference last year, and you've expanded it this time. It's coming up June 2nd through 4th. Tell me about what's different this year. So um, last year was a single day event and it was our first attempt to try to bring to colleagues, to clinicians, to practitioners, and also to users, some basic concepts behind rehabilitation robotics. And it was such a success that uh, Dr. Dylan Edwards and myself had discussed the potential of expanding this beyond as there was significant demand. So we went from a single day event to three days event, so we can invite additional speakers and give an even broader perspective of what is changing in a very fast changing field. Yeah, and you've got an impressive uh, array of of speakers uh, lined up. I see you've also got uh, John Krakauer coming up from Johns Hopkins for this uh, as well. That should be a very good talk too. also, a number of uh, different, um, you know, vendors as well of some of the different robotic devices that are, that are increasingly commonly in use in um, many of the rehab hospitals around. But uh, folks can get more hands-on experience with those, uh, including see some uh, that I haven't seen before. Can you tell me kind of what people should expect from kind of the the hands-on aspect of it? So the hands-on aspect, uh, our goal is to let the the attendees to try to feel 
and uh, and understand the benefits of different devices. You know, there is not it's not a panacea. There is not a single solution that would work best for every possible patient. So I think it's important that we understand what is the benefit of each technology, how best to to integrate in the process of neuro rehab and how to understand the, the, the good and the bad of each of those devices and their limitations. So we think that by having a reasonable you know, set of different devices from different vendors be placed during uh, one of the days on Friday so they can experiment and, and test them and have them side by side so it would give them the best understanding of the subtleties of each of the devices and for, for what type of patient perhaps they are best suited for. The conference is largely clinically uh, focused, like what percent would you say is, is research versus clinical application? I think we are trying to balance that and have both, uh, to have a 50-50. So we have like speakers like, as you mentioned, John Krakauer, uh, Joel Stein, George Wittenberg, Neville Hogan, myself, Dylan Edwards, and many others, uh, Bruce Volpe. So we have a, a very nice set of researchers that would talk about neuroscience aspects, uh, roboticism uh, that would be talking about robotics and different uh, aspects uh, on the development of the technology, and also several clinicians that will be discussing how they are implementing and integrating the technology in the process of neuro rehab. Now, Ego, you're you're a very busy guy yourself. Have a very uh, active uh, uh, lab and workspace there at MIT, which I enjoyed uh, visiting there uh, a few years ago, and hope to come back and check out what you're doing in person before too long. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what you're excited about recently in your own work? So I'm focusing uh, quite significantly on the development of low extremity robots. Uh, so as you know, the American Heart Association, the VA, and the DOD, they had endorsed the, the use of uh, robots for the upper extremity rehabilitation post-stroke. But the same kind of endorsements is yet lacking for the lower extremity. And I see this as a tremendous opportunity um, for us to also impact uh, on, this, uh, on this aspect. So I'm developing two uh, devices uh, that we have finished de developing, but we are improving and testing with different uh, types of patients. The first one is the AnkleBot that we had already developed more than 10 years ago, but more recently the MIT Skywalker. Uh, that is a smart treadmill. You might think about it as a smart treadmill that actually uses gravity to propel the leg forward. So you might imagine that you know the patient uh, leg during the stance phase is moved back by the treadmill and as this split treadmill understand when the patient leg is or foot is ready for the swing phase it gets out of the way it essentially drops out and gravity uh, uh, propels the leg of the patient forward um, and at uh, and heel strike moment, the, the treadmill moves back, so, so you have a very natural gait. And with that, we are training not only rhythmic movements, but also things that I think are very important that are lacking in 
we have robotics for the lower extremity that is to train discrete and balance. So we can train uh, all the different primitives of movement uh, for the lower extremity also. And initial results look very promising. Now turning to the pages of the May issue of the archives, a couple of important papers to discuss. So one captive audience you might not have considered for physical therapy is folks with chronic kidney disease getting hemodialysis. Well, this challenging patient population is the subject of research by Anna Carla Brueggemann of Santa Carina State University in Florianopolis, Brazil. Her paper is titled Effects of Neuromuscular Electrical Stimulation During Hemodialysis on Peripheral Muscle Strength and Exercise Capacity. It's a randomized clinical trial. Anna applied high and low frequency neuromuscular e-stem on the vastus lateralis and medialis muscles for an hour during hemodialysis sessions three times a week. As you might expect, uh, higher e-stem resulted in better knee extensor strength gains. Uh, and in fact, the low stem group didn't see any strength improvements. But both groups saw improved six-minute walk tests. I asked Anna if this was a surprise. Initially, we intended for the low stimulation group to serve as a shun group, but with the positive results in this group, we realized that even with low values of frequency intensity, we had used a training group. So yes, it was a surprise to improve exercise capacity in this group. Anna attributes the improved endurance to effects on type 1 muscle fibers, as well as vasodilation and increased vascularization. Uh, those are effects demonstrated in similar studies of heart failure patients. Low-frequency stimulation also boosts IGF-1. IGF-1 is one of the anabolic factors that promotes increased muscle mass, and in patients with CKD, IGF-1 levels appear to be decreased, which may impair maintenance of protein metabolism and lead to muscle hypotrophy. Now, Anna points out that may only be increased because the low-frequency stem group uh, happened to have lower uh, GFRs and lower muscle strengths at baseline, meaning the group had more to gain from any intensity of stimulation. Regardless, uh, low-frequency stem is, of course, better tolerated, uh, and if it improves endurance consistently, then e-stem could find a clinical role as part of hemodialysis protocols. In future studies, Anna plans to conduct trials involving a true sham control, uh, look at tissue oxygenation effects, and impacts on activities of daily living. Anna has a master's of science degree in physical therapy and plans to pursue further graduate work in rehabilitation science. She's rather busy working in both the uh, respiratory and physical therapy lab at the University of Santa Carina, as well as providing in-home therapy to patients. This is a top-notch paper, and I think her future is pretty bright. segment, we turn to Isabel LaFont, Flavia Correan, and Bertrand Coulet, all of the University Hospital of Montpelier in France. Isabel and Flavia are both PM&R physicians, and Bertrand is an orthopedic surgeon. Their paper in the journal's May issue describes excellent real-world results with treating tendon contractures in adult brain injury patients with percutaneous needle tenotomies. Dr. Coulet trained Dr. Correan to perform the minor surgical procedure, 
and she treated all the 38 cases described in the study, demonstrating that it's feasible for PM&R physicians to incorporate this procedure into their practice. First off, you're all joining me from Martinique, not from France. Uh, I'm interested really to hear about this, uh, this working trip that you're doing first. So we are here for an, an educational program. It's an universi a universitary program devoted to teach uh, PMR doctors on neuroorthopedics. What we call neuroorthopedics is the way we can treat and prevent some orthopedic deformities in neurological patients, like, for example, spasticity or tendon contractures or other deformities. So we have here maybe 20 students, and we teach our students with clinical examinations, with some technical gestures. I mean, we make some injections in patients, and we teach them how to examine patients and how to build a therapeutic plan for those neurological patients with orthopedic complications. Uh, now, Dr. Corian, I understand that you're the one actually uh, doing the procedures primarily, so I'd like for you to describe for us uh, kind of what it looks like um, in some detail, I mean, including the, the equipment that's necessary. Is a, is a scalpel involved at all? First, uh, this technique is not uh, a new technique. It was already described or used in the treatment of echinus foot in children, so it's the Ponsetti technique in the 50s, I suppose, and more recently in the age patients. So we did find, we decided yes to to use this technique in the in the in the patients with um, neurological conditions. First, with a non-functional outcome, and uh, with experience, with, uh, with experience, we realized that this technique could be proposed also to some patients with a low level of function, or even in uh, patients with some prognostic for uh, in for gait, for example. The procedure involves only the 18-gauge needle through a single puncture using the beveled end to shear tendon fibers perpendicular to the given tendon's main axis. Unlike surgical tenotomy, this is a procedure that only requires local or local regional anesthesia, making the treatment far more practical for patients with multiple comorbidities or frailty. It is a very interesting technique because uh, we can treat tendon contraction in, uh, for the tendon in superficial uh, situation. Our results are comparable to uh, the results obtained uh, in, uh, in the same condition uh, by classical surgery. So uh, it's something very interesting for us because we realize we have not uh, we have the, uh, the same ef uh, efficiency and not not more complication. And what about learning this technique, which takes less than 10 minutes on average? It's not part of standard PM&R training, but it certainly is something that a PM&R physician can take up, a process that orthopedist Dr. Coulet explains. The aim of your strategy is to transfer the competence from the surgeon to the PMA. Initially, uh, I performed the, the surgery with, uh, with Flavia, Flavia Corian, and uh, slowly I helped the hair to perform this surgery in my presence. And slowly, she performs this surgery with the surgeon near. It's so, so often in the same operative room, but slowly the, she performs uh, um, alone the surgery. Often, we discuss about the cases together before the surgery. 
And uh, when you perform a new procedure for the new tendon, for example, we analyze the situation, we analyze the risk, and uh, we analyze the technique detail to perform the, the tenotomy. And slowly, uh, there are a, tra a, a transfer of, of competence without increase of the risk for the, for the patient. Percutaneous needle tenotomy is now a standard treatment offered at Montpelier. It's a joint PM&R and orthopedics decision whether to offer the procedure in any given case. You know, I love studies like this that are, that are relatively uh, realistic and practical. Uh, you're looking at a real kind of clinical population here, somewhat uh, diverse like we would typically see in, in rehabilitation. Uh, the kind of, you know, this type of, uh, uh, it is observational research actually looking at your clinical practice, but of course it, it matches the, therefore it matches the real clinical conditions and scenarios that we see. Um, you know, the, so the diagnoses are, are relatively broad. Can you talk about kind of the types of patients that, uh, that you're seeing? Yes, we, the, the most uh, part of our patients are uh, uh, patients with brain damage, traumatic, traumatic brain uh, injury or uh, vascular um, cerebral uh, problem. Uh, and uh, the most part of them, uh, but we have also the patients with polyneuropathies or uh, multiple sclerosis, so uh, all uh, kind of uh, neurological problems or even uh, cerebral palsy. So we treat tendon contracture on uh, secondary to a uh, neurological problem, uh, cent central or peripheric one. And uh, in terms of kind of uh, the contractures that you're treating, we're talking about, you know, fingers and, and wrists, elbows, hips, knees, and so forth, um, toes. The ankle, you know, with regards to the Achilles tendon, that particular tenotomy is a little bit more more involved. Uh, it sounds like. Can you kind of describe to me what that calls for? Yes, for the Achilles tendons, uh, it, it, it's a very very interesting result. In fact, it's uh, the, uh, there's a very same technique uh, used by a surgeon, but we uh, we uh, practice it uh, with uh, a needle. A needle, uh, sorry. We associate this technique with a cast for uh, four to six weeks, uh, which uh, this period uh, allows tendon uh, cicatrization. And uh, this is very important because uh, uh, we have patient, uh, patients uh, with uh, a gait uh, prognostics, and it, uh, casting is uh, something uh, we associate uh, with Achilles tendon. Tenotomy. And you mentioned that the, the cast is required for a little bit longer in that. Most of these smaller uh, tendons and joints, uh, the cast is typically on for a couple of weeks. And, and you're removing the cast at least once during the week to kind of check the skin and so forth. Your evaluations, uh, looks like there's five of them. There's directly before the procedure, a week after, a month after, three months after, six months after. And what you're measuring is relatively straightforward, three, three primary things, the goal attainment scale, pain, joint range of motion, uh, straightforward, uh, realistic uh, goals there. Can you tell me about the results that you're seeing in terms of uh, goal attainment? Well, a goal attainment is a, a score which allowed us to, uh, to measure uh, an, uh, a very personalized outcome, objective of the treatment. Pain we can we can measure pain, uh, but uh, not not in uh, all patients, uh, and uh, in the few patients when uh, in, uh, in who um, we improved walk for our gait, uh, we measure also uh, uh, distance or uh, speed of walking, 
But the goal attainment scaling, uh, I think it's a very um, correct and uh, interesting uh, uh, tool uh, to to appreciate. Yes, the the outcome and the results of our treatment. Yeah, very very practical. You know, we're kind of uh, reaching the endpoint that that you wanted in terms of releasing that that tendon, whether whether passive or active, or better than that. Uh, for pain, um, certainly, as is typically reflected in this patient population, you know, a fair number of patients couldn't communicate whether or not they were they were in pain uh, or not. Uh, but for those who were, you you did see good results in terms of reduction in uh, in pain scale scores, uh, joint range of motion also in improving uh, dramatically. I mean, were there any unsuccessful procedures that were done in terms of you're not getting some improvement in range of motion? Yes, we had a, a complication. We found uh, uh, cutaneous and uh, tendon necrosis to a patient uh, with Achille tenotomy. This patient had a very severe, uh, important arteriopathy in the lower limb. We didn't uh, reach our uh, point. <laughs> the only, uh, only negative or uh, yes, negative result. And in that particular patient, kind of. Uh, demonstrated that that patient had an arteriopathy that you then found afterwards. It just emphasizes the importance of a good neurovascular exam before doing this procedure, uh, but a good, a good lesson learned there. Other complications included two patients with small hematomas that didn't require drainage, and one patient with a pressure wound on her heel related to casting that resolved in a few days. Another patient had to have her ankle cast removed early due to severe pain. Ultimately, every patient in the study saw improvement in their condition, except for the single patient with a previously undiagnosed obliterative arteriopathy that required an aortofemoral bypass. The group plans to publish next on a focus series concerning knee contractures, and I look forward to seeing that work. And that's it for this second edition of RehabCast. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I hope we'll see you in Atlanta this year. Please share this podcast. Please rate it on iTunes. And sending your suggestions and comments to docvox at gmail.com. That's D-O-C-V-O-X at gmail.com. Thank you. brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.